if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Welcome indeed. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. It is seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock and we are underway at uh, our excuse me on this Wednesday, the 24th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord 2024. <clears throat> Big show coming up for you today. Jerry Serino, state senator will be joining us because today is override day, the final smack in the mouth of the little Napoleon uh, sitting in the governor's mansion in Columbus. Mike DeWine vetoed the SAFE Act and Save Women's Sports Act, all combined together in what we now know as HB 68. It was passed by the House. It was passed by the Senate. Then DeWine vetoed it, just smacking Ohioans in the face. And, yeah, I just used that metaphor twice. That's okay. Um, and uh, immediately the House came back early on January 10th and overrode that veto. Today the Senate returns to Columbus, and they will vote to override that veto. So it'll be just literally a shameful moment for Governor Mike DeWine as he continues to defy the will of the people who actually gave him his job. So Jerry Serino, state senator, will join us to talk about that and a host of other issues uh, that need to be addressed in the uh, Senate starting today. At 1110, speaking of the State House, Chris Banweg will join us. Chris is uh, a candidate for Congress in Ohio 13. We were going to talk to him yesterday. We had a couple of scheduled shifts, so he's been kind enough to reschedule with us for today. So Chris Banweg will And uh, just confirmed moments ago that 1010, uh, at the top of hour number two, we will talk with Senate candidate, that this is, of course, U.S. Senate candidate, um, Frank LaRose, the current Secretary of State. Yesterday we had... Uh, uh, Bernie Moreno on the of course they of course uh, faced off with one another along with Matt Dolan who has not returned our calls at least as of yet we'll see if we ever get them but um, the three of them faced off in the debate on Monday night uh, statewide debate that aired on Fox 8 here in Cleveland and uh, so yesterday we had Bernie Moreno talking about how it went for him he was very confident about how it went and his campaign he says his internals show him leading by double digits in a very comfortable margin and pointed to the attacks that he took from both Dolan and um, uh, and LaRose on that stage as evidence that he is now surging and leading, especially riding the uh, high of the endorsement of Donald J. Trump. So uh, I got Bernie's take on it yesterday. Today we get Frank's take on it. We'll see if we get a Matt Dolan take on it. We have invited him to appear uh, on this program, so we'll find out if that happens. 
So today, we do have Frank LaRose, Jerry Serino, and Chris Banweg on the docket. Our number one is wide open for you. 216-901-0945, Whatever questions you have, I will do my best to provide answers. If you just want to make comments, we can do that too. Now, before I start with the top news of the day, which there is a lot, uh, let's go ahead and do our pledge. Patriots, if you would, stand and face your flag. Put your hand on your heart and join us for this pledge. If you are a believer in surrendering America, which apparently our federal government is, if you support that federal government, if you support the surrender of security and sovereignty, then you do not really have any reason whatsoever to stand and pretend to pledge your allegiance to this country. You don't have any. Instead, take a knee like the good little Marxist that you are. For the rest of us, however, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Alrighty then, we are going to start with what America is most concerned about right now. It used to be inflation. That has changed. Immigration has now overtaken inflation as the top concern of voters in the United States of America. This is a new Harvard uh, CAPS Harris poll released on Monday, just being uh, released, uh, or I should say making the rounds today. More voters have identified immigration, and illegal immigration in particular, as the top policy concern they have uh, in the United States right now. 35% of the respondents said immigration is number one, paramount concern among an array of issues. Inflation is a close second because we continue to pay too much for, mm, I don't know, everything with 32%, but immigration skyrocketed as an issue. It jumped seven points on the list compared to the previous month's poll, which, of course, would have been December, and that's because in December they had 300-and-some-odd thousand illegal border crossings setting a new record. It seems like Biden is as addicted to setting new records when it comes to illegal crossings as a, as a kid might have been uh, pumping quarters into a Pac-Man machine when I was growing up. Seriously, it is an addiction. They can't stop. He literally wants to set a new high score with every new month, just like the kids used to do. Guess what? It's working. He's very good at this. Immigration and inflation were followed by economy and jobs as top concerns. 25% of those surveyed identified that. Then crime and drugs and health care listed by 16%. But immigration, again, has surged to number one because immigration is surging in this country illegally. Update. On where things stand now with respect to the state of Texas saying, Enough, Joe Biden. Enough, Alejandro Mayorkas. Enough, Merrick Garland. If you won't secure and protect the residents of our state, the state of Texas, then we'll do it. Greg Abbott, as you know, in addition to trying to move as many of those illegals who come pouring across that border into his state onto uh, uh, blue into blue sanctuary cities, that's a big step, by the way. Why should they absorb all of the costs and all of the danger and everything else that comes with unchecked, rampant illegal immigration in Texas? So, in addition to that, they've started to to block up the border between the buoys in the river and the razor wire on the banks and the razor wire on the border to try to stop people from coming across. 
They're doing everything they can. Now, you know what yesterday's top story was. The Supreme Court of the United States said, well, you can do whatever you want to do, but the Biden administration has the right, at least temporarily, to cut that razor wire, to remove it, to allow illegals to come across as much as they doggone well want to. It's just another you know, reminder that the Supreme Court of the United States that we thought was such a wonderful originalist six to three court is not that at all. So the question becomes, now what does Texas do? And that's the lead story update of the day. Greg Abbott, the state of Texas, has made their decision. They have extended a long middle finger to the Supreme Court and said, we're not stopping. And why wouldn't they? Because one of the other top stories of the day today is Joe Biden doing it again. Doing what, you ask? Ignoring that very same Supreme Court. The Supreme Court that hold him unequivocally that it is unconstitutional for him to just wave a wand and eliminate and cancel student debt. The Supreme Court told him you can't do it. The students have to pay back their loans. That's the reality. And Biden now, for about the fifth time since that Supreme Court ruling, has said, screw you. Headline, White House cancels $5 billion in student debt for over 74,000 borrowers. This is a huge, huge issue for those on the left. And for Biden... It is a huge, huge way to buy votes. This is vote purchasing. How many students are struggling under debt that they shouldn't have taken on because they had no business going to college if they weren't going to graduate with a degree that would help them pay all of that back? How many of them are going to say, if Joe Biden is going to get get rid of my debt for me, of course I'm going to vote for that guy. It's an election year, and Joe Biden is buying votes. But in the process, he's thumbing his nose at the Supreme Court. Which leads us to what Greg Abbott is doing. And you know what? I think he ought to be doing exactly the same thing. If the Supreme Court rulings are only going to be taken as mere suggestions anymore by the administration, the regime, the Biden regime, then why should Greg Abbott pay any more attention to them than he is? So Greg Abbott... The governor of Texas said, bring it on. This is not over. Abbott vowed to continue the fight to secure the southern border for his state and thus for the rest of the country. As they come through Texas, as you know, they are then being pushed up into or they themselves are migrating to various uh, uh, parts of the country, including here in northeast Ohio. After Texas installed around 30 miles of razor wire along the southern border, U.S. Border Patrol repeatedly cut through the wire to allow illegal immigrants to enter. In some cases, as I pointed out and told you about the video that I shared online everywhere I could, uh, Biden's team sent out forklifts to lift the wire up and allow the the, the, uh, migrants to, right in front of them, walk right on underneath it and come through unmolested. Texas filed a lawsuit, as you know, uh, against the Biden administration for that, and that's what the Supreme Court said. Nope, we side with the Biden administration. Abbott said this is not over. Texas's razor wire is an an effective deterrent and effective deterrent to the illegal crossings. I will continue to defend Texas's constitutional authority to secure the border and prevent the Biden administration from destroying our property. And by the way, it should also be pointed out, what Peter Kersenow told us yesterday, which I was unaware of, 
because I don't know the Constitution like Pete does. I know it pretty well. But Pete's one of the best lawyers in the country, and Pete said, you know, Article 4, Section 4 of the United States Constitution requires the federal government to protect Texas. It requires the federal government to protect every state. It is literally uh, in the Constitution. Article 4, Section 4 of the um, of the U.S. Constitution, as I try to pull it up here real quick, because I posted it yesterday along with the video of the um, uh, forklifts, and apparently my computer is about to crash. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it is grinding and grinding and grinding as I try to pull up my uh, screenshot of that uh, Article 4, Section 4. Here it is. Article 4, Section 4 says, The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. That is the direct language. That's not an interpretation. It's not a summary. It's not a paraphrase. It's the direct language of the Constitution, line by line. The United States shall protect each state in the Union against invasion. The current regime is doing the exact opposite. They are allowing a state in the Union, Texas, to be invaded. Not just allowing it, but facilitating it, encouraging it participating in it, cutting the wires so that it can continue or increase, raising the wire with forklifts so it can continue and increase. This is not even a debate, a point of debate anymore. This is what they're doing. It is what they've decided is most important to them. So, again, the response from the um, uh, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, is we're not stopping. You want to make this fight happen? Let's make this fight happen. Let's take this to the courts. Let's see if Merrick Garland sends um, uh, armed uh, FBI personnel down to Texas to arrest the governor, to arrest his, uh, his, his team that are going out there and continuing to lay the razor wire. Let's see what they are willing to do, and let's see if Greg Abbott has the guts uh, and the uh, intestinal fortitude to stand up for what is right here. So this is, this is a big deal, obviously. Biden says Republicans are blocking Democrats from securing the border. Republicans, like Greg Abbott, continue to lay razor wire down to secure the border. Uh, quite literally, they think we are that dumb. They think we are that stupid to think that we are the ones responsible for this increase in immigration because we won't allow them to do what they believe they should do. And what is it that they believe they should do? Well, Kamala Harris answered that question. Kamala Harris has has laid out her two-point or two-pronged plan, if you will, for um, solving the border crisis. You want to know what those two prongs are? Let's let's Fixing listen. Fixing this problem, which is a long-standing problem. But what are those solutions? The solutions include putting resources at the border to do what we can to process people effectively and putting in place laws that actually allow for a meaningful, meaningful pathway to citizenship. Did you hear that? She's the border czar. She's the bubblehead that Joe Biden picked because she's a diversity hire who was put in charge of the border. And she just said the solution to the border crisis is more processing of illegals coming across the border so they can do it faster and expand pathways to citizenship. How does that solve the border crisis? For goodness sakes, how does that solve the crisis rather than encourage millions more 
of, of, of people around the globe to flood our southern border because we're going to, we're going to give them a pathway to citizenship. And we're going, to, we're going to hire more federal agents to process them as they come across to, to speed up their entry. They are literally actively engaging in the invasion of America. That is not hyperbole. It's not being overstated. It's the reality. Meanwhile, what's this costing you and me? Got another story here from the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Did you know that was a thing? In the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee Resettlement, since October of 2022, okay, so we're not even talking about a full two years, the Biden administration has spent roughly $20 billion, your tax dollar. Look at your check when you get paid on Friday or your direct deposit screen. Look at your federal taxes and just know that some of your money is being spent on these illegal aliens. A lot of your money, $20 billion just on the refugee resettlement since October of 2022. They've had roughly 10 billion, or excuse me, million illegal crossings since um, Biden took office, and it's costing us tens of billions of dollars. That's just on the refugee resettlement program. That doesn't even count how much of your money is being spent to feed illegal aliens, to house illegal aliens, to clothe illegal aliens, to educate illegal aliens, and to provide health care for illegal aliens. Every single week when you get your paycheck or every two weeks or whatever it is that you get, there is going to be a line there that you can't read, but it's real, that says, I'm taking this percentage of your money to give it to a bunch of freaking criminals. That's the reality. Know that. Tell people that. Share that. And most importantly, fight that. By voting these traitors the hell out of Washington, D.C., starting with Biden. You have to elect Donald Trump. Nikki Haley needs to get the hell out of the way now. It is the inevitable. Some people don't want to see it. I didn't want to see it because I wanted everybody to have a vote, but when it came clear, became clear and DeSantis stepped aside, it's time. We literally asked the question a week ago yesterday. Last week said, when is the time to coalesce? Or I'm sorry, we could go today because the Iowa caucus were, were last, uh, last Tuesday. Uh, well, you know, when is it the right time to coalesce around our eventual nominee? And that answer is now. And we cannot play around. We need, I mean, quite literally, the damage that has already been done in the three years of the Biden administration is not over. It's not complete. There's another nine, no, I'm sorry, there's another essentially 12 months or 11 months because he's going to be in power until, of course, January of 2025. So really about another 11 months, more damage is going to be done. The number of 10 billion illegals, or 10 million illegals rather, is going to get to 12 or 13 without question by the end of this calendar year. And the amount of money that we're spending will be billions more. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Democrat governors all over the country are begging Joe Biden to take more money out of your paycheck and send it to them in their blue states as migrant aid, and they want him to use wartime aid powers to do so. A letter written to Biden by Democrat governors, including Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, said that, 
the uh, political machinations are delaying much-needed help for their states and cities, and they want Biden to pass a $110 billion request for wartime aid to be sent to them so that they have money, your money and mine, to navigate and handle all of the illegals that are flooding their cities and states because of the guy who would be sending him that money and his policies. Joe Biden, Democrat president, floods the country with 10 million illegals. They find their way to blue uh, sanctuary cities, and then the blue sanctuary city mayors and blue sanctuary state governors uh, complain and say, you got to send us more money so we can, we can provide for these people. When's the last time they made a request for more money to help with homeless veterans? Never. But they want to make sure that they can provide for all of the illegals. Meanwhile, again... We've got, I've got stories to beat the band. Some of these wealthy Chicago suburbs are now resorting to what I think won't be a request sometime soon. Now they've resorted to asking residents, will you house some of these illegals in your spare bedrooms? You've got room in your house, especially if you're wealthy. Will you take in a few illegals? The government will make it worth your while. Holy goodness. Wait until that's not a request. Wait until that is an order. We have so much to do. 216-901-0945-888-281. All right. Did I mention that I had a number of uh, more stories here regarding immigration? The number one issue, according to the most recent survey, national survey on the minds of Americans as we head into this election year, yeah, I do. And this one is a follow. And I welcome your calls, by the way. We are we are uh, wide open between now and 1010 when we're going to talk with uh, Frank LaRose, um, Senate candidate, 216-901-0945, if you want to get in on any of this. Remember the uh, story yesterday that we talked about um, with respect to uh, uh, the one of the illegal aliens that has crossed the border, was being interviewed, asked like so many others, hey, where are you from? You know, where are you heading? What's your plan? All those kind of things. You see these interviews all the time. Well, in fact, let me give you the audio. It's only 19 seconds, but this is the guy that essentially sent shockwaves through virtually everybody who saw it as he was asked like everybody else, who are you and where are you from? Listen to what he said. Please, by the way, if you are smart enough, you will know who I am. You are really not smart enough to know who I am. But soon you're going to know who I am. Very easy. Ah, very easy. <laughs> the, the entitlement. The entitlement. Uh, no, believe me. I'm much better than that. The entitlement, guys. Wow. You will know soon, sir. You will know soon. So this guy who crossed into the United States illegally said, you will find out who I am very soon. You will know soon, sir. And we talked about this some yesterday. It, it shocked a lot of people um, because, again, you know, you, it, it, there's always perspective, right? If you have a kind of a, an inborn perspective to judge people or worry about people and to judge them harshly, you hear that as a threat. If you have a more optimistic demeanor and mindset, you might say, well, he just means he's going to come here and do spectacular things. You, you don't know me now, but you will, because I'm going to come here and I'm going to invade, you know, invent or create the next big thing. You're going to love it. Um, I think we have our answer as to which of those two is, more, is the more accurate perspective. According to 
the online viral account libs of TikTok, the individual, and she is crediting uh, Manhattan Mingle at Manhattan Mingle, which is uh, another another TikTok account. <clears throat> The guy that entered the country and threatened that we will soon find out who he is has been identified as being Movsom Samadov. Now, how was he identified so quickly? Because he's in the system, as it were. He is a Shia Muslim who has served 12 years in prison. He was detained originally in January of 2011. He was sentenced in October of 2011. He was released in January of 2023, so one year ago. Um, And he was sentenced for multiple crimes involving arms trafficking and terrorism. Let me say it again. He did 12 years for arms trafficking and ter- uh, trafficking and terrorism and he was now allowed into the United States by border patrol agents holding up razor wire with forklifts to allow him and anybody else who wants to get in here to get in here that man is now roaming the country he's now free to move and 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 do whatever he wants wherever he wants and the reason is is simple. The reason is Joe Biden. There were, well, in, in that regard, it's not that simple. It's not just Joe Biden. It's not just Kamala Harris. It's not just Alejandro Mayorkas. It is the, the cabal of globalists who have worked with them and are maybe, in fact, pulling his and their puppet strings to take down the United States to literally stop anybody from putting up barriers that would stop some of these types of people from getting in. Because they want them in. Why do they want them in? You know why they want them in? Because of what kind of damage they can do, which is the goal. So for everybody, and and when I say everybody, what I mean is I'm literally talking about leftists online that, that, that troll conservative media accounts like mine and others telling us that we're racist because we want to secure the border. That Donald Trump was racist when he said build a wall. Those who say that we just don't want black and brown people coming in here and replacing us because we're so bigoted. Understand this. You are literally allowing terrorists Already hundreds on the foreign terrorist watch list that have been apprehended. We don't know how many have come through between ports of entry illegally because there wasn't razor wire there that are among the gotaways. We have no idea. But some of them actually identify themselves like this guy did. You don't know me, but you will soon. I said yesterday, those are the words of somebody who might be a, 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 a mass shooter, a future mass shooter, or a bomber, or Lord only knows what kinds of plans this guy might have, given what he has been convicted of already. So these people 
talking about the leftists get on online and they go on CNN and they go on Morning Joe on MSNBC and Joy Reid and they talk about how black and brown people have just as much right to be here as white people do. We're, we're not a nation of white supremacy or we're not supposed to be. We've got to let all of these people in. They don't give a rip what they're here to do as long as their objective is met. What is their objective? The objective directly as to why Biden and Harris and the Democratic National Committee, why they would want to engage in all of this is simple power. Very simply power. We want to win elections. And if we can indeed bring in millions and millions of future Democrat voters, and please do not make any mistake here, that is what these people are in the minds of the Democrats who are lifting that razor wire and blocking uh, uh, Texas from from actually securing their border and so forth. Um, That's what they believe. I just played the clip for you from Kamala Harris. You heard Kamala? What's the solution to the border crisis? She said more agents to faster process illegals into the country and a pathway to citizenship. That's her answer. What does what comes along with citizenship? Voting rights. If you're a citizen, you can vote. So they really want to. They, they think they're importing ten million uh, more illegal uh, illegal alien voters since Biden has been uh, president, add, added to the number that were here before, we're talking 20, 25 million illegals who are here right now, that they want to grant mass amnesty and pathways to citizenship for, thinking they'll reward them by voting Democrat. So let me tie that to one of the other parts of the story that I, that I mentioned before the break. Democrat governors are really angry, and, and uh, mayors that Greg Abbott is sending busload after busload after busload of illegal aliens to their blue sanctuary cities. Why? Is it because they don't want to have to provide for them? No. I mean, that's part of it. They want somebody else to pay the price. They want Texas to have to deal with that, right? But here's the other part of it. Let's play chess, not checkers. The other part of that is sending them to already blue sanctuary cities does no good when they're given the right to vote because they're already going to be voting Democrat in those cities. They want these illegal alien voters who are going to eventually be grateful to Democrats for allowing them to come here and get get citizenship, they want them to live in red states. They want them to live in red cities, so that when they come in and vote Democrat, they turn those red cities to blue. That's what's going on here. And I just, it's insane to me that people don't recognize that and they're, they aren't willing uh, to acknowledge that. J.B. Pritzker, here's, here's an example. He's the, um, uh, he looks a little bit like Jabba the Hutt, I, if you're a Star Wars fan. I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I know who Jabba the Hutt is. Anyway, um, uh, J.B. Pritzker is, is one of the loudest voices screaming that we shouldn't be, uh, uh, um, uh, that, uh, all of the illegal aliens that keep being, keep coming here that are being sent here to to our cities, you know that has to stop. It's ostensibly he says, and I'm trying to find my clip now. I seem to have misplaced it, but ostensibly he said um, what uh, what they don't want to have to do is deal with the cost because you know that's why we want the governor to the uh, president rather to send us you know billions of dollars in wartime aid because we're on war footing here with what's going on in the uh, uh, you know in these cities. But he also said literally that he does not believe that they should be sent there, that it's not fair to send them there. And it looks like I just don't seem to have that clip at the moment. But uh, but it's not fair to send them there, send them there as well. And the answer or the reason why is because they are indeed blue sanctuary cities, and they don't need any more voters there. They've already got it locked up in those cities. They got it locked up in those states. 
And that's just the reality of it. So border encounters are up 460% since just 2020, the last year of the Trump administration. 460%. That's a, that's a very hard thing to wrap your mind around. Not, not 4.6 and not 46%, 460%. According to that data, we will have over 12 to 13, meaning if that continues, 12 to 13 million illegals just in Biden's four years. And then they want to give him four more. Or they want to give somebody in their cabal four more years. And they need to stop Donald Trump. Which brings us to the second part of the big story of the morning. Donald Trump yesterday cruised to a 12-point victory over Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley held a victory party at the end of the night, essentially saying, we did a great job and we won, and now it's on to South Carolina and dozens of other states, meaning that she and whomever is backing her, and I don't know who that is, but what I do know, let me rephrase, what I do think, what I believe is that she is not here to help Republican conservative Republicans take control of what is supposed to be a smaller government, that she seems to be acting much, much more like a Democrat, or at the very least, an old-school, old-guard, Bush-era, um, rhino Republican, a neoconservative war hawk, who is going to try to, to restore those, you know, those, those types of policies. In other words, she's not helping anything having to do with what we are facing today, and what she is doing is delaying the inevitable, which, of course, is Trump's coronation as the nominee. Uh, like I said, I once asked the question a week ago today whether or not that it was time to end that, uh, that fight against him because it's just impossible for anybody to overtake MAGA, and the answer was no. That, that's when the time was. Well, now that Nikki Haley has lost by 12 points in a place where she spent 31 million campaign dollars to try to, you know, make her, her line in the sand, if you will, now that she lost by 12 points, what's she going to do in her home state? Lose by 30? She can't stay. It's time for the inevitability of Trump to touch everybody, and moreover, the campaign to support him has to begin in earnest. And it starts by the way, with trying to figure out who his running mate is going to be and who his running mate should be. I asked Peter Kersenow that question yesterday. I'm going to ask you that question today. Now that we know that there is no uh, chance, there's no path to victory, as as the saying goes, uh, for Nikki Haley, and it's going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden in a rematch, two 80 or nearly 80-year-old guys, Uh, in a rematch, which I don't think is optimal or ideal for anybody, but it is what it is. How does he overtake Joe Biden? How does he um, prove the skeptics wrong about his uh, viability in a general election? I have been one of those skeptics. I'm worried. Tell you point blank, I'm worried. This isn't a matter of want, because you know what I want. It's a matter of what we might get. I'm worried about a general election. With President Trump, given the fact that they are doing everything they can through the use of lawfare to stop him from even being eligible or to stain or taint his name with convictions in felony cases, I worry. So what I want, and I want to ask you to talk about, is who can help push him over the top? 
who is the best name on the ticket after him to have an impact. President Trump said on Monday that he is looking for somebody who can truly handle the Oval Office if he can't serve. The biggest and most important quality that he is looking for is somebody who can actually do the job if he can't, for whatever reason. Now, is he intimating something there? I don't know. I don't think so. Is he suggesting that his health might not allow him to serve a full term or that they're going to do something? I don't know what that means, but he said, I need somebody that will be a great president. So take that for what it's worth. He says he said in a previous interview that he already knows who he's going to who he's going to pick, but nobody knows who that is. Now he's saying whoever I pick is going to have to be as if it's not a decided thing. And he likes to play these games, and that's fine. But President Trump said he needs somebody who can absolutely do the job as president, which I think is going to narrow that field down very very dramatically. I do not believe it's going to be somebody like Elise Stefanik. I do not believe it's going to be somebody like uh, Tim Scott. I do believe it could be somebody who's already an executive. Somebody like Governor Kristi Noem. Somebody like Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Somebody like, well, I won't say him, but, uh, but somebody who's already an executive and who already knows what it's like to step into that kind of a role, I think is what he's talking about. But the question is, which one of them will move the needle? Which one of them will give him a huge advantage in the upcoming nine months of campaigning, which is what's going to have to happen here? You know, it's, it's, it's very unique. I don't know, at least in my time, in my years of studying this or watching this or tom- talking about commenting on this, I'm 25 years into, into radio now, um, but I, I don't think I've ever seen a time where neither of the primaries mattered, where Super Tuesday didn't matter to either, either party. Where Ohio's primary isn't going to mean squat for the presidential races because the nominees have already been decided by January. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Biden's got nobody running against him. Or, well, let me rephrase the DNC wouldn't let anybody run against him. That's why Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a Democrat who ran, decided to run for president, isn't allowed to be on the ballots because uh, they, they just said, no, we reject you. Nobody's going to be challenging Joe Biden. So Joe Biden is un- unopposed. And now Donald Trump, for all intents and purposes, is unopposed. So it's going to be nine consecutive months of just campaigning against one another. What will move the needle? That's the question. Issues-wise, we know immigration is moving the needle. And that is a huge advantage for Donald Trump. It's a huge advantage for all of us who want border and national security. The American people have said this is issue number one. Issue number two is inflation. Both of those are losers. Losers for Joe Biden. American paychecks shrink. American bills grow. And Biden's at 31%. 31% approval rating. He's ripe for the picking. This has to get done. And between the inflation issue and the illegal immigration issue... Donald Trump should be on the strongest footing any any potential candidate or nominee could ever be on. Greg Abbott is fighting them in, in, in the court of public opinion. In the court of public opinion, guess what? American voters are siding with Texas and Greg Abbott. According to public opinion, Greg Abbott is, is constitutionally within his rights to stop this invasion with every single border obstruction that they can. And Joe Biden is wrong for trying to remove those things. So in the court of public opinion, again, which is the only court that really matters right now, 
Uh, Joe Biden is doing it wrong. President Donald Trump, who wants to, and Greg Abbott, and those who are supportive of national and border security are the ones who are doing it right, and that is going to reflect itself in the polls. By the way, here's the idiot Pritzker I couldn't give you before. Not enough has been done. There's no doubt about that. And I think that the president needs to do more. The Congress needs to do more. Uh, Cities out here that are the target of this political game that Governor Abbott is playing uh, are suffering. And uh, here in Illinois, it's minus 29 degrees uh, outside with the wind chill. Uh, We have migrants that arrive from Texas virtually every day, uh, hundreds, and uh, we don't have places to put them. We don't have enough shelter space here. There are plenty of other cities where, you know, if he's going to send people, they could be sent. But, no, he's choosing only Democratic states, Democratic cities. In other words, he's choosing the cities and states that have signs over top of the city names that say Sanctuary City. Isn't that what you asked for? This is a winner for Donald Trump. This is a loser for Joe Biden. But it's time for everybody to get on board that train. It's 956. We're going to talk Senate races with Frank LaRose now. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. All right. Hour number two is underway now. It's eight minutes past 10 o'clock. Good morning. Uh, Wednesday, the 24th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. The um, the uh, primary uh, situation is pretty much done, or at least it should be done. Um, Donald Trump routed uh, Nikki Haley again yesterday. She says she's going to go to North, uh, South Carolina. I doubt very seriously she's going to want to absorb a 30-point beating in her own home state. It would be pretty embarrassing. I think that's one of the reasons why DeSantis saw the writing on the wall, too, before he had to go down to Florida and lose to Trump in his home state. It is what it is. Donald Trump is the nominee. And Donald Trump uh, needs to be supported and coalesced around uh, by everybody else, including his now what should be former opponents for that office. It is now Biden versus Trump, part two, the rematch, the sequel, whatever it is that you want to call it. And uh, all hands need to be on deck. Now, just because we will not have a presidential primary ballot to, you know, worth casting in March when it comes to this, because Donald Trump will be the only man standing at that point in time, or the only person standing at that point in time, no offense, Nikki, um, doesn't mean that we don't have something to vote for in this primary. There are a lot of races that matter. Uh, one of them, of course, is the Senate fight. On Monday night, I watched with uh, great interest the Fox 8, uh, um, well, it was on Fox 8 here, I guess, NBC and Fox 8 uh, combined for this thing, but uh, we watched uh, Frank LaRose and Bernie Marino and Matt Dolan battle it out on all of the issues to try to win the uh, Republican nomination to take on Sherrod Brown yesterday. We had Bernie Moreno on who felt pretty good about the way things went on Monday. And I said, okay, that's good. I want to see how Frank LaRose feels how things went on Monday. I want to see how Matt Dolan feels about the way things went on Monday. We haven't heard yet uh, back yet from Matt Dolan, but Frank LaRose did answer the bell, and he joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Frank, it's good to have you. How are you, sir? Good morning, Bob. I'm doing good. We've been traveling all over the state, and yeah, had a great conversation Monday night. Feel like I was the clear winner of that, and made the case that it's time for a credentialed conservative, not just somebody that talks the talk, but somebody who's proven it 
because we have a country to save, and that's not exaggeration at this point. If we don't act soon, this country's in real jeopardy. It is right now. Yeah, it, it certainly is, uh, and, uh, and I love the phrasing. That's uh, Larry Elder's been saying that for years. We've got a country to save. That's what it is all about, and we do indeed. So you say you felt like the clear winner. Tell me why. Well, you know, it felt like for a large portion of this, it was kind of Matt and Bernie, two corporate elites that have a lot of uh, personal wealth just sitting up there sniping at each other. And I was talking directly to the people of Ohio about the real issues they care about, this economy that's hurting families and the false solutions that the Biden administration offers, green energy mandates and hiring 80,000 new IRS agents. We know how to repair an economy. It's by getting the government out of the way and having a free market thriving economy. It's also about doing energy exploration. I was talking about securing the border from personal experience, having served down there as part of a counter-narcotics task force and real solutions like immediately deploying three military divisions to the border, which could happen in a matter of days. And talking about parents' rights, how crucial it is that our children be educated and not indoctrinated, not taught to hate one another and to hate this country as is happening in too many of our classrooms. So I was focusing on that, not taking pot shots at one another. Um, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, Peter Kersenow about this, who um, uh, is one of our guests every week, and uh, he's a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, extraordinarily well-respected conservative. And, and, and we kind of both agree there isn't a ton of difference not to say there aren't some specific details, but a ton of difference ideologically and policy-wise between you and Bernie Moreno. Maybe a little bit less so, or excuse me, more so differences with Matt Dolan, particularly when it comes to the culture things and the wokeness and, and whatnot. But you guys seem to be in lockstep on almost everything with respect to securing the border and how to handle the cartels and military, militarization and so on and so forth. So I see more similarities than I do differences there. What are the differences? Tell me what makes you so much, uh, you know, stand out and, and, and be the, the right guy better than Bernie Moreno to take down Sherrod Brown. Tell me what really separates you guys. So it's a couple of things. The, the, the main one is the big difference between talk and action. Listen, every candidate who's running for a Republican primary, unless they're a fool, is going to say they're a conservative. They're going to talk tough about the border. But talk is not enough. We need somebody that we know is going to go to D.C. and fight for our battles, uh, fight for our values. Ohioans know that I run into battle. I'm not somebody that's afraid of a fight. I've proven it. I'm the only one with a 100% voting record on life and guns and taxes. And again, it's easy to say it. What's different is actually standing up to be counted when people are flooding your office with phone calls and protesting in front of your house and saying terrible things about you from the Senate gallery and still standing up and voting to protect life, still standing up and protecting our Second Amendment uh, rights. The other thing is this. There couldn't be a greater difference in sort of profile. Imagine Our candidate against Sherrod Brown, who falsely portrays himself as this working man kind of Democrat, it's nonsense. He's not. But imagine our candidate being one of the wealthiest men in Ohio and and somebody that has multiple homes and planes and all that kind of thing. We don't fault them for that, but it's a terrible contrast with Brown. I live the way Ohioans live. I have to pay my bills each month, figure out how Lauren and I are going to buy school clothes for the kids and, and that kind of thing. I think that profile matters. We have over 52 members of the Senate, 52 members of the Senate that are millionaires. What we don't have in the Senate is any Green Berets. I think it's time for an Army sergeant who lives the way Ohioans do to go to D.C. and fight for our conservative values, as I've proven that I can do. 
We are talking with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who today is just candidate Frank LaRose for the United States Senate. He's in the primary fight against Matt Dolan and uh, and Bernie Moreno. Matt Dolan's money comes from his family. Uh, and, and, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with it. It just is what it is. Bernie Moreno, though, came over here, as he pointed out in his uh, initial remarks, you know, from Colombia as a legal immigrant to this country who didn't have anything. His millions are self-made. Um, you're right, you know, that, that makes him an elite because, you know, very few people can say that they're multimillionaires. Uh, but he built businesses while you were fighting. Aren't both of those noble? I think they're both noble. I'd encourage you, though, to, to look at, at his background. It's not the rags to riches story that he claims. His, his family is one of the wealthiest families in Colombia, and we don't fault them for that either. But it's just the fact, if you look, there have been several articles about this. But again, he's taken millions and turned it into hundreds of millions. That's uh, great for him. He's been successful at that. He's a very gifted salesman, and I'm not taking anything away from him. What I'm talking about is being able to get conservative things done, working with President Trump, as I've proven that I can do to actually move the ball forward and protect this country. And again, this country is in jeopardy. We've been sending Republicans and Democrats to Washington, D.C. that are willing to kick the can down the road, that want to be invited to all the right cocktail parties and make buddies and, 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 and have friends in D.C. That Those days are over. We need people to go there that have the courage to fight for our values and then come home to Ohio each weekend and not care about what the D.C. social circle has to say. Um, Frank, uh, Secretary LaRose, again, I'm I'm trying to treat you like a candidate now. You're not talking about your capacity as Secretary of State, so I apologize for the informality. Um, when, When President Trump endorsed Marino, I had you on, I think, the next day or the day after or something like that, because you had just commented in that interview with Colleen Marshall about how you were told that he is not going to endorse anybody. They made a big deal out of that at the debate on Monday. Colleen Marshall said that because um, the next day uh, he endorsed Bernie, um, that essentially you were lying or asked if you were lying about what you were told. Um, can you expound upon that? You were you were very confident in that interview with Colleen that he was not going to endorse anybody. So did you make that up? It's kind of what they were asking you. Oh, God, no. Listen, my integrity is, is something that's sacred to me um, as a Eagle Scout, as a soldier, as a father. Um, I, I'm not a liar. I'm somebody that tells the truth. But listen, people can change their minds as well. And evidently, President Trump changed his mind on that. But that's not what I'm interested in talking about. What I'm interested in talking about is who's going to stand with him. Right. It, it, that's what really matters. And I've proven that I supported him in 2016. I went to work for him in 2017 as part of his inaugural committee. I've stood with him in 2020. I was early on an endorser of him in 2023 last year and still stand with him today. He's going to need allies in the United States Senate to get his appointments through, not only to those crucial federal judicial posts, but for every cabinet agency. He's going to need people that have the courage to stand with him and and fight against the establishment right and the left who's going to try to block him from finishing the wall, who's going to try to keep him from deporting illegals that have come here unlawfully into this country. He's going to need people of courage to stand with him. That's who I am. And endorsements are just that. Endorsements are fine. But what matters is a record of accomplishment. You know that I'll stand with President Trump because, again, to me, this is personal. We've got a country to save. I decided when I was 18 that I was willing to die for this country. I believe America is so precious that it is worth dying for. It's also worth living for, and that's the commitment that I've made. And living for America means fighting to save the soul of this country, which is what we're working on doing exactly right now. 
We're talking with uh, Senate candidate Frank LaRose, who is Ohio's current Secretary of State. Immigration, you've covered extensively here, and I'm glad. And you did uh, on Monday night, too. I think everybody did, uh, you know, what their plans would be. Um, I've got an article in front of me, Harvard's uh, CAPS Harris poll, the most recent one released Monday, found that immigration just recently surpassed inflation as the number one concern for voters in 2024. So it's a national poll. But inflation did come in a close second. 35% say immigration is number one. 32% say inflation. Can you hit that one for me? Tell me. What does Senator LaRose do when he gets to Washington, D.C., about inflation and about the overall health of this economy, which was damaged so much when Joe Biden came in and made his day one decisions for uh, now, now three years ago? You know, I like to talk about it in terms of cost of living, because even the term inflation is, is a little bit remote to the average person. What it means is when you walk down the grocery store aisle, when you put fuel in the tank, when you pay your electric bill at the end of the month, everything costs more, but wages are not rising to keep up with them for average working families. And so that means at the end of the month, there's a delta. There's a there's a gap between how much you make and how much you're spending. It starts by reversing the terrible policies of the Biden administration. That means that we shouldn't be funding 80,000 new IRS agents who are going to hassle small business owners. We should completely reform and really gut that entire agency and certainly not add a new, uh, you know, a whole new workforce for them. It means that we need to undo the green energy mandate that the Biden administration packaged as the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, this is the, the most cynical thing I've ever heard. They, they poured trillions of dollars into unreliable energy sources that don't work when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, uh, mandates that require us to drive electric cars that don't go more than 250 miles at a charge that we, the grid can't support anyway. That money needs to be reversed, and we need to actually you know, return money to the people that earned it and invest in real infrastructure. Like, for example, I was down in southeast Ohio over the weekend at a natural gas-powered plant. It's creating 285 megawatts every minute, powering a half million homes, and it's burning Ohio natural gas. Guess what? That plant runs regardless of what the sun's doing and what the wind's doing. Those are the kind of investments that we need to be encouraging. Uh, We also need to get the government out of the way. The solution is not more government. It's more freedom. This has been the secret sauce to American prosperity from the beginning. Hardworking people, great natural resources, and the freedom to make those two work. We have great hardworking people. We have great natural resources. What we need to do is get the government the heck out of the way. This one may not be a headline grabber, but one of the bills I'm going to introduce my first week in the United States Senate is a thing called the RAINS Act. It's called that because it literally pulls back the reins on the federal bureaucrats. The worst things that happen in the federal government often do not happen on the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate. They happen on the 20th floor of some federal office tower somewhere where a bureaucrat is dreaming up rules and regulations for people to live by. Those those bureaucrats need to be constrained. We need to pull back the reins on them. President Trump was right, working to change the culture of the federal bureaucracy and requiring them to undo more regulations than they do. Those are the kind of things that we need to do to get this economy thriving because it's about families enjoying the quality of life that they deserve. Um, Frank LaRose, how do you combat the the climate nuts? Um, because this is such a huge, huge part of this. I'm looking at the inflation rate 
not year over year the, the way they do, but the presidential inflation rate from day one to, uh, and I think this one is through day, uh, the 30th month of a presidency. And I'm looking at the, um, the increase in costs of energy due to decisions made by Joe Biden. And it's extraordinary. 53% higher gas prices, 25% higher electricity prices. And that uh, doesn't even count, you know, food and, and other things. But when it comes to the inflation rate, so much of it, particularly as it pertains to energy, has to do with trying to appease the climate nuts. And I'm sorry to phrase it that way, but I'm not really. Um, but they are. Um, you, you mentioned EVs a few moments ago, sure. but they are trying to make everything cost as much. You know, they're trying to phase out fossil fuels by making them impossible for people to afford. And they're trying to sell us on this idea that there's enough wind and solar power to handle all of our needs and to do so at an affordable price. Uh, how do you address that and how do you fight that growing um, uh, element, if you will, in 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 the national in the national conversation, the the Green New Deal pushers. Yeah, I mean, you called them climate nuts. I, I've referred to it as a climate cult. It, it's it's at every level, and it starts. And this gets back to parents' rights and making sure our children are educated and not indoctrinated. It starts with the indoctrination that's happening in our classrooms. Let me tell you a story. I've got a twelve-year-old, and we've raised her to think for herself. And she goes to a good public school, but she came home just a couple months ago and said, Mommy, Daddy, teacher says we're all going to die from climate change. That doesn't sound right. And we said, let's sit down at the family at the kitchen table here and let's talk about this. And so we were able to talk through this with our daughter. And listen, we said, listen, we're outdoorsmen. We love going hiking and fishing and hunting and kayaking. Uh, we want to take reasonable steps to make sure that the environment is protected. But this, this, this obsession that the left has with climate goes way beyond that. It's about actually closing down productive activities, shutting down industries. My joke is that at this point, EPA stands for end productive activity because that's effectively what they want to do. And, uh, and, and that's where that needs to be, you know, undone. We need to, to speak with common sense about this. We need to have reliable energy that is baseload energy that actually keeps the lights on. That's what keeps a thriving. That's what keeps an economy thriving. And right now we're pulling back on that. We need to invest in the things that work. We need to start educating people about really it's the bad climate policies that are hurting more people than climate change ever would. And and we need to be very honest about that. Yeah, I think that's well said. A hundred percent, in fact. Uh, climate change is not the threat. It is the policy and those who are trying to use it uh, and the, the, the myth, mythology of it, if you will, uh, for their own benefit and to harm the American people. So last thing, <clears throat> Mr. LaRose, I asked Bernie yesterday the same question here. You know, I asked him to kind of separate himself from you the same way I asked you to separate yourself from him. And then I said, it's one thing to <clears throat> say this is why I'm better than the other guy. But the other part of this that voters need to consider in our state is which one of you is more capable of beating Sherrod. It doesn't necessarily mean different from yeah. one another, but but how do you size up Sherrod Brown, and why is Frank LaRose better positioned to beat him? He's a three-time incumbent now. Uh, why are you better positioned to beat him than Bernie or Dolan would be? Yeah, well, what matters first and foremost is what are you going to do in, in Washington? But the other important part of this mission is how do you beat this longtime extreme liberal incumbent? And I'm glad you asked that question because this is where my value proposition really comes in. Sherrod Brown's been in public office of some kind for 48 years. I've only been alive for 44 years. If you're going to beat an entrenched incumbent like that, you've got one shot to do that. 
doesn't it make sense to send a candidate into battle that's actually proven he can win statewide elections? Out of the three of us running, not only am I the only lifelong Republican, I'm the only one that's never been a registered Democrat. I'm also the only one that's ever won statewide elections. I've done it four times, two primaries, two generals. In fact, in 22, when I was reelected secretary of state, I got 100,000 votes more than Sherrod has ever gotten in nearly a half century of running for office. That shows I can rack up the votes that it takes to beat this guy. And what that means is all parts of Ohio, not just in rural Ohio, where I grew up working on a farm, but in urban Ohio, among union households, among suburban families. Those are where I do best. And that's the numbers that I've been able to accumulate during my time in in, in running for statewide office just over the last five years. Ohioans know me. They know I'm a credentialed conservative that fights for their values. And I'm the guy that gets the votes that it's going to take to beat Sherrod Brown. That's what we need to do. We need to send a battle-tested conservative into battle against this extreme liberal, not just so we can beat him for Ohio, but so we can take back control of the U.S. Senate. And that's why the eyes of the nation are on Ohio, because if we beat Brown here, we can finally get rid of Chuck Schumer and put Republicans in control of the United States Senate. That is huge. It's so important not only to win this race for Ohioans, to have somebody who's going to represent us in the Senate that actually reflect our values and our priorities, but also the the bigger picture of the majority uh, for the entire country. We need a conservative Republican majority and a strong one in the Senate for us to get any of those things that you and I just talked about done. So that's important as well. Uh, Frank LaRose, great case made for yourself, particularly the ability to to, uh, beat Sherrod Brown. It's going to be a very interesting run between now and March. I told Bernie the same thing. I'll tell you, I'm going to have you guys back on as many times as you're willing to come so we can really help the Ohio voters make the right decision here and take this seat back from Sherrod Brown. Thank you so much for coming. All right, 1035. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420. The answer, thanks again to Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who is in that uh, very, very tough fight with Bernie Marino and Matt Dolan for the Republican primary. At least it gives us something to look forward to in March on primary day, since uh, our presidential vote won't mean anything at that point in time. We're only going to have one uh, one candidate uh, on the ballot by then. In all likelihood, Nikki Haley will see the uh, writing on the wall sooner rather than later. But anyway, uh, thank you to Frank LaRose, and uh, we're going to pivot now. This is a day we've been looking forward to for longer than I wanted. I wanted this to uh, happen much sooner so that we can get the 90-day clock started on making this happen, and that is to make law in the United or in the state of Ohio, rather, uh, for the SAFE Act, the SAFE Act and the Save Women Sports Act. You know the drill by now. It passed overwhelmingly in the House and the Senate. Mike DeWine simply incomprehensibly vetoed it, despite the knowledge that it did pass with veto-proof majorities. They came back in the House and uh, and overrode that veto on January 10th, but the Senate isn't back until today. But yes, they are back today, which means this is override day number two. Joining us with reaction and previews, I suppose, is Senator Jerry Serino on AM 1420, The Answer. Senator, good to have you back. How are you? Well, well I want to go back and uh, grab this on their archive. WHK, I think it's 1420. Senator, you ready? I think you did that last week or the week before, too. Yep. Senator, Senator, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hello, Bob. Okay, good. Yeah, sorry. I think uh, we're live. We're live. Uh, But, yes, we can archive anything that you want. We'll make sure to get that to you. Sorry, so, I didn't realize I was live at that. Point. I know, I know. It's okay. It's okay. Fortunately, nothing, uh, nothing uh, wrong with that. So, Senator, um, okay. we've been waiting for this day. Obviously, it's an important one. Is it going to be unanimous in the Senate today? This override vote? Oh, I, I, 
you know, you never know until you have the vote, but I, I do not believe that it will be unanimous. Uh, I think uh, we uh, we believe we have the votes to to complete the override, which is 20 votes. Beg your pardon. Uh, I, mean, I mean unanimous among Republicans. I apologize. I mean among Republicans because oh, sure. I think there was only one um, holdout the first time, and I and I think I have heard that uh, Senator Manning has has uh, indicated a uh, you know a willingness to vote for the override. I meant on, on your side. Yeah, sure, uh, no problem. And uh, so I th- I think that's a very likely outcome that we will have a unanimous vote. Uh, again, it's, you have to look at who voted for the underlying bill. Uh, in the first place, uh, and again, uh, Senator Manning was the, I believe, the only one who didn't. Uh, and I, I've heard the same thing as you have just in, indicated that uh, he may be coming around to to voting to override the veto here. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think we're in good shape. We don't generally go into votes not knowing that we have enough support to for the passage of something. So now that we have a little bit of rear view, uh, a mirror, uh, you know, to, to look through. Um, do you have any idea why Mike DeWine vetoed this? He knew it was coming. Why did he try to stop something as commonsensical as don't let kids not only have surgery to change their sex or in a futile attempt to do something that's not scientifically possible anyway, but also don't get them started with puberty blockers and, and cross-sex hormones and don't let boys beat up on girls in sports. I mean, it was so common sense. I can't understand right. you know, why, why the governor vetoed it. Do you have any idea? Well, it's it's difficult to get insights into any individual's decisions on these things, but I, I will tell you that, uh, as I mentioned to you when I was on your show last time, uh, mm-hmm. that you know I think I, I, I look we deal with people who disagree with us on policy issues all the time, both within the legislature, even within the Senate, and you know we respect each other's opinions, and sometimes they're they're you know they're based on facts and sometimes not. but you know look, look the governor felt strongly about some things, uh, although I will tell you that. The fact that of the executive orders that he launched uh, immediately after he vetoed the bill uh, does tell us that he does see some common ground and some he does believe that certain things are very questionable and or dangerous. Um, but he just didn't want to go all the way as we did uh, in, in the bill in '68. Uh, so, you know, I, I I mentioned to you on the last uh, last time I was on your show that I think the governor's. You know, uh, basically, he's a good guy. I've known him for a long time. We may disagree on some policy issues and so on. Whatever his motivation was, I think his heart was probably in the right place. But I do think that some of the data that he had talked about and that was presented to him um, was was not correct, uh, particularly uh, reference the, the suicide uh, issue, which I, I, I know listening to his statements was very moving for him. Uh, the, the problem is, is that the, you and I both know that there are studies out there, uh, particularly the Swedish study that we talked about last time, that uh, really uh, uh, counters uh, the, the, the views that were presented to the governor mm-hmm. by pro-trans groups that, uh, that, this, that are, you know, passing this bill is going to create more suicide incidences. And that is clearly, we don't believe the case at all. We're talking with Ohio State Senator Jerry Serino, and yeah, I remember uh, talking about and, and reading about that Swedish study as well. I mean, this just seems to be so so common sensible and to protect girls and uh, and and young women, uh, you know, in in Ohio in their sporting endeavors as well is just so incredibly important. Um, so we're going to get the override done today, and then just to clarify, it's ninety days, right? After uh, after it passes, then it's ninety days it takes effect. Correct. That is okay. correct. 
So um, I'm going to have to ask you the same thing I'm asking all of the other uh, senators and House members that I talked to about this. Do you have a prediction? And I know, as you said before, you can't really read in anybody's mind, and you certainly can't um, tell for sure what's going to happen in a court case, but um, what do you expect this to look like when inevitably the passage of this new law comes into direct conflict with um, the the issue number one that became law as a constitutional amendment back in November? because they're going to right. use that and the language in it as saying that uh, it's up to the individual uh, to decide their own reproductive health care choices. And if that means if they want to get sterilized, they will get sterilized by way of these hormones and puberty blockers and so forth. So what do you right. think happens here? Um, eventually it's going to have to hit a courtroom, I guess, right? Well, as you said, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to predict these things, but we know that when, when, when Issue 1 passed, uh, in November, uh, we, we knew that because of the vagueness of some of the language, uh, some of that vagueness was a good thing that might work in our favor, but some of it is going to result in uh, things having to be interpreted, uh, certainly. And uh, will will other parties push the envelope? Absolutely. I think the, the writers and supporters of Issue 1 um, left things particularly vague for a reason because they felt that would be a great entree into uh, judicial challenges uh, to various things that, that we would do. So uh, I think there's a, I have a high expectation that there will be lots of litigation for many years uh, related to issue one and to uh, the override of 68 uh, that we're going to do today. So uh, yeah, lot, lots of court cases, lots of interpretation. Uh, and um, again, I think that was the plan from the, the supporters of issue one, uh, from the get-go, uh, and we'll have to make sure that uh, those of us who feel differently than they do are going to be aggressively uh, countering their actions in the court and or taking our own initiatives in some cases uh, just to be more affirmative in our uh, point of view. I like that idea, and I hope that is what happens. We're talking with State Senator Jerry Serino. They're going to override the House Bill 68 veto uh, today. Uh, I want to ask you about a couple of other pieces of legislation now that you guys are getting back to work. Um House Bill 73, I I saw something earlier this morning, and I can't figure out where, that said uh, Senator Huffman was was pulling from the agenda. I don't exactly know what it means. Uh, HB 73, this is the uh, Dave and Angie Patient and Health Provider Protection Act, which passed out of the House. It's in committee, and it was supposed to be taken up today, and it's not going to be now. I don't know why, but um, I was also surprised when I see this very lengthy list of co-sponsors, all but two of them Republicans, and I didn't see your name on it. So can you tell me where you are with Dave and Angie and uh, and, and where this is headed? Yeah, uh, first of all, I have the greatest respect for Steve Huffman, Senator Huffman. Uh, he's also a physician, mm-hmm. uh, and he's a, he's a great, uh, great guy. He's very pro-life. Uh, senator and somebody whose opinion I respect a great deal. Um, I can't speak to why it was uh, removed from the agenda today. Uh, I, 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 you know, that's usually up to the uh, uh, the chairman and the, uh, of the committee that, it, that where it resides, mm-hmm. and the president of the Senate to determine whether something gets on the agenda today or not. But um, my guess is that it'll continue probably work in committee. Uh, we don't have committee meetings scheduled until sometime late in February. So uh, it'll probably be protracted, but it, it could be a case where there's some interested party information that has come in or some additional data that uh, caused a uh, necessitated a pause uh, in the bill. So I can't speak to what particular problems there might be. 
uh, on that. Uh, so uh, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see what comes out uh, in the next couple of weeks. I, as I mentioned, I know you're not co-sponsoring it, but are, as you have read it or what you know of it, are you supportive of the bill? I, I'm I'm supportive of the bill, uh, and again, I uh, when Steve Huffman um, introduces a bill, um, I think uh, it's something that we we as as a, as a senator and a physician uh, and somebody who I think we share tremendous uh, values together. Uh, I I have a great respect for any bills that he brings forward, uh, and so uh, I you know uh, the, this this bill I suspect will move ahead. Uh, again, there's just some reason why it was it was removed from the agenda today, uh, and I can't really speak to what that those reasons might be. Okay, fair enough. Two more for you, uh, Senator Jerry Serino, while I have you here. Um, this is a new one. Um, there are a couple of, or if not a few, uh, House members on the other side there at the state uh, or in the uh, General Assembly that are moving to get rid of police traffic ticket quotas. I uh, just saw the story yesterday, and I thought as long as I have you on, I, was, I would ask you about it. Senator, I mean, um, the uh, uh, president of the Ohio FOP, Gary Wolski, who's a good friend and a frequent guest on this program, completely yeah. backs this, uh, saying it is ridiculous for any police departments to set quotas, which makes it look like they're trying to generate revenue rather than protect people. And we need a law to right. say that they shouldn't do this. Uh, are you familiar? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I am, and, and it's an interesting. Uh, it's easy in this particular one to take both sides of an issue because, uh, you know, I public safety obviously is is elected officials. Public safety is is should be our number one priority, Agreed. certainly. And I'm also a big supporter of home rule and letting uh, municipalities and townships, you know, manage their own businesses uh, and keep figure out how to keep their communities safe. At the same time, uh, I, I would not be for putting incentives out there uh, tied to performance reviews or, you know, uh, uh, job security for, for our police officers uh, to, to be able to write a certain number of tickets per day uh, to, to, to meet some kind of a quota. So um, I, I, I really, as, as a former county commissioner and who dealt with municipalities and local governments a lot, um, I, I kind of lean in. I wouldn't say I've made up my mind on this yet, but because uh, we still have more time to, to uh, look through this one. Uh, I lean in the direction of, of home rule support mm-hmm. and letting the municipalities and townships figure out for themselves what is the right way that they can promote and deliver um, safety and security for their residents. Uh, but again, I, I do struggle with the idea of putting incentives out there for law enforcement uh, to, to write tickets. So uh, I'm, I'm a little conflicted on this one, <laughs> Bob, but uh, I think we'll have time to kind of sort through this as as it goes through the process. Yeah, yeah, there there will be time. There's no doubt about it. But I thought I'd get your initial uh, uh, thoughts on that. As with this one, now I don't know where this is going, but I just cannot believe it has started. Uh, a bipartisan bill has been proposed to pay our children to do what you and I were encouraged to do with the, the swat of a paddle if we didn't, and that's just go to school, <laughs> go to school right. and attend school. If you don't go, if you ditch school, or if you cut class, you're getting in some serious trouble. But apparently things have changed over the uh, the last 40 or 50 years because now we have an Ohio proposal for a bill to pay kids. Um, I don't know who's paying. I don't know where the money's coming from. But uh, but if it's going to be put up by the state, and that means it's put up by the taxpayers, i got a big problem with it. But you've seen it. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I have, actually, I watched the House hearing last week. It was uh, quite spirited. Uh, uh, particularly um, 
and uh, between uh, Representative Williams and Representative Seitz. Uh, both both are two guys that I uh, greatly respect and have good working relationship with. Uh, I have to say, and the bill hasn't even gone through the full committee process in the House, so it, it may or may not ever get to the Senate in the first place. But I will just tell you that the idea of paying incentives to get kids to go to school, uh, I, I just find that really kind of ridiculous. Um, and I, I just, first of all, we're not going to use taxpayer money to do that. Uh, and, uh, and again, I think we have, um, we have other tools at our disposal, uh, to get kids back to school. I agree that particularly post COVID, uh, that the truancy rates, uh, are, 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 you know, off the charts and we need to do something about that, but financial incentives to pay people to do something they ought to be doing or that parents ought to be seeing, uh, uh seeing to, um, is is it would not be an appropriate use of taxpayer dollars. So, again, I think this is going to be uh, debated uh, pretty hotly in the House. I don't know if it ever even gets out of committee um, and comes over to the Senate, uh, much less passes the House uh, on the floor. Um, but I will tell you that if it came over to the Senate, uh, I would I would have uh, some very very serious questions about it. And it's not something that at this stage of the game I would certainly support. I'll tell you what, Senator Serino, um, and, and I'm glad you you said what you just said about COVID because, and I won't ask you to pile on Governor DeWine. Uh, I do enough of that on my own because of the way he handled COVID. But I think what you just said is so extraordinarily important. I think closing the schools and locking them down and tell, letting kids spend Lord only know how many months of school that they missed. I mean, there are kids I can guarantee you, and I have I have very direct sources on this who have not been inside of a classroom in two and a half years. They stopped when COVID came in, and they never went back, or they were supposed to go back, and they started uh, you know skipping school. They literally have not had uh, education outside of a Zoom class in two and a half years. I think this is one of the after effects. Kids who were locked out of schools got used to not going to school. Parents got used to them just doing it on their computer. And I think for far too many of them, this is why we have the, you know, the chronic truancy problem that we have right now. They, they got used to not going to school and they don't feel like they need to be there. This is an after effect of our COVID policies. Well, you're exactly right, Bobby. And, and, you know, obviously we're going to pay a price for this for decades to come. It's a generational issue that uh, may not be able to be undone, quite frankly, but we can help stop it in, in, from getting any worse. Look, I think at the end of the day, uh, we've had a lot of people that have been vocal with school boards about parental rights and so on, uh, and I agree with those things. Parents should be very engaged in their students' education. We also have parents' responsibilities. Okay, that goes along with the rights, and parents need to really step up and make sure that their kids are going to school. And I realize we have, you know, broken families. We have single-parent families and some very difficult situations that people have to deal with. But people need to understand that without basic education, they are dooming their children to a, a, a very, very dreary economic future. Uh, and, and you're depriving the state of Ohio and the, the businesses that are in the state of having trained employees that can, be, that can go to work and help keep Ohio's economy vibrant. Um, so parents need to step up here. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the government does not need to be paying kids to go to school or paying parents to get their kids to go to school. Parents need to step up and take their responsibility. It goes with the parental rights that everybody's been talking so much about.
Yeah, parental rights and responsibilities. There are two different things there. Rights and responsibilities. But they, but they go they, they go together. They go together. They do. They do. And uh, and too many of them want the rights, but they don't want the responsibilities, or they don't want to live up to them. But yeah, I mean, I just I know far too many kids. Or I shouldn't say I know the kids, but I know the numbers of kids who stopped going to school when they weren't allowed to go to school, and they got involved in things they shouldn't have. As a result, they found themselves looking for some other things to do. They joined gangs, and guess what? When school was back in session, well, they're not leaving their gangs. They're not leaving their 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 new social circles uh, to go back into the classroom. And I think this is something that we are going to pay a price for for a very very long time. But, Senator Serino, back to the good news. Uh, looking forward to one thirty, which is uh, when you should be getting things underway for the vote to override the veto so we can protect kids from uh, experimentation and mutilation in the state of Ohio, protect girls from the uh, uh, the imposition of boys on, into their sports and into their private spaces. So I wish you the very best with that, and thank you so very much for your time today, as always. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Senator. Senator Jerry Serino joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. He's one of the good guys. He's um, he's he's on the right uh, right side, I think, of just about every issue, and he's one of our go-to uh, people in the uh, Ohio Senate, and I'm so glad we have uh, access to him. Uh, we'll take a time out here. We got a break coming up at the top of the hour. We're going to talk more Ohio State House stuff, but this time with somebody who wants to be uh, wants to uh, go to uh, Congress. In fact, uh, so I should rephrase that. Former State House member in on the Senate and House side, Kevin Coughlin, is running in District 13. I asked him last week when I interviewed him, hey, what's the, who's this Chris Banweg guy who's one of your primary opponents? And he said he didn't know much about him. I said, well, that's a problem. We need to know something about him. So Chris Banweg, candidate for Congress in Ohio 13 against Kevin Coughlin, will join me. Talk about uh, what's, uh, what his campaign looks like, what his vision for. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz. On AM 1420, The Answer. It is indeed every bit of that. Hour number three is underway. Good morning. It's seven minutes after 11 o'clock. It's Wednesday, the 24th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2024. Thanks again to State Senator Jerry Serino. Override day is today in Columbus. It's a big day as the Ohio Senate writes the wrong committed by uh, little Napoleon rhino Mike DeWine. Uh, the House did it on the 10th, today the Senate does it, and uh, tomorrow we all celebrate. Well, technically, 90 days from now, when it takes effect, we celebrate the protection of children from mutilation and literally experimentation. That's what I love about the SAFE Act. 
They call it what it is. It's one of the best acronyms for a bill that I've ever seen, saving adolescents from experimentation, because experimental surgeries are exactly what's being done to these young, confused kids who have all been victimized by the social contagion called trans. So uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. So thank you to the senator. We spoke um, earlier on in the program as well. And by the way, uh, Senator Serino is really has really got his finger on the pulse of a number of the other um, the other uh, uh, issues, uh, including the the David Angie Protection Act. Don't mistake anything that he said for not being supportive of that. It, he absolutely is, and so are virtually every other Republican, uh, or so are all of the other Republicans, I should say, on the Senate side as well. This passed the House overwhelmingly. It'll pass the Senate as well. We just don't know why. Senator Steve Huffman pulled it off of the table today, and I asked uh, Jerry Serino about that. I want you to know that he is involved in a lot of important things, not just, obviously, the SAFE Act, but that just happens to be uh, today's. So thank you to uh, Senator Serino, and uh, I want to move on now. Oh, and also we spoke with Secretary of State Frank LaRose as well as he fights for a spot in the United States Senate in the primary against Matt Dolan and um Bernie Marino. But I want to move on now and talk about um, a really interesting primary fight that's coming up on March 19th for Ohio's 13th congressional district. About a week or so, almost two weeks now, we spoke with Kevin Coughlin, who is a former state representative and former state senator who has decided after about 10, 11, 12 years of being out of the political game, he wants back in and he's running for Congress now. When I interviewed Kevin Coughlin, and talked about why he wants to go to Congress and go into the swamp. Um, I asked him about his opponents in uh, in this primary fight. I said, "Tell me about Chris Banweg," and he said, "I don't know much about Chris Banweg," and you know what? Neither do I. So I said, "We've got to rectify that. We got to learn something about Chris Banweg." I do know enough to know that he's been endorsed by Senator J.D. Vance to go to Congress. I do know that, like J.D. Vance, he's a veteran. He's a business executive and a Marine Colonel. And that's a pretty big deal. But most importantly, he's a father and a husband born in Akron who grew up in Canal Fold. And I know this because his Twitter bio says so. Let's welcome Chris Banweg to the program now on AM 1420, The Answer. Chris, thank you for the time. How are you, sir? I, I'm doing very well, Bob. And thank you, first of all, for having me on today. I appreciate it's, it. It's a pleasure. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to learn about the uh, candidates that uh, that want to go and serve us in Congress. So, uh, like I said, um, I, no disrespect, of course, when I say you're an unknown, but you are an unknown because this is your first foray into politics, right? It, it is. I'm currently a Hudson City Councilman, but um, as you said it, you've likely never heard of a bandwig before because there are only six of us in the United States. <laughs> Five well, live in my house with me, and my dad lives outside of Chicago. Fantastic. So, yeah, we, we need to learn a little bit about you here. So And uh, and thank you for letting me know about uh, the Hudson position as well on council there. But, yeah, I, I asked um, uh, uh, Mr. Coughlin, and uh, he didn't know much about you either, but, but I want to give you a chance to kind of give us a little mini bio. You're a Marine colonel. I have extraordinary respect for all who serve, but particularly our, particularly our fighters in the Marine Corps. And to be an officer, to rise to the rank of colonel is an amazing thing as well. So give us your backstory. No, I absolutely appreciate the opportunity. So I'll begin with um, where my family comes from, which really shapes who I am and and why I believe in doing this. At the end of World War II, when the communists took over Yugoslavia, they imprisoned my grandfather in a starvation-to-work camp with a bunch of other farmers as they took their land. Now, he escaped the camp to go meet up with his fiancée in Austria, where they married, had had my father, pardon me, 
and applied for refugee status in the United States. It was granted, and they started a life here in Stowe, Ohio, out of three wooden boxes. Now, with that kind of family, you uh, appreciate very deeply what the United States offers. So when I grew up, I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to defend what we've got here, the ideals, the life, the opportunities. And I also wanted to take advantage of those opportunities. So I went into business as well. But in three combat tours, and you've mentioned to the promotion of the rank of colonel, I've been a counterinsurgency and government stabilization expert in other countries. I never thought I'd need to use those skills here in the United States. But as well, as you mentioned, with the support and endorsement of J.D. Vance, I started the campaign. You know, it's um, it's interesting. I was just talking to Frank LaRose, who is running for Senate, and um, one of the core um, qualifications I think that he is counting on um, is his military service as a Green Beret. And uh, he's talked about the need to send more fighters to Washington. You certainly would fit that bill as well. Is, uh, is, is, is that one of your, your core qualifications, is the fact that you have fought and you know what it takes uh, to protect and serve? Absolutely. And I, I think what's unique, too, and folks have pointed out to me, is this time and experience in civil affairs working in other nations' governments, from the local to the regional, national, international level, it's prepared me educationally on the, the government side. I've worked in governance, economic development, judicial systems, and education, but usually in a hostile place, right? So you're in a place where you know we maybe didn't see 10 years ago here, but people are at complete odds with each other and scrapping down to the last moment. So bringing that skill, experience, and behavior into our own government, I think right now is the time where we need that. We're talking to Chris Banweg, who is a candidate for Congress in District 13 now. He's running against Kevin Coughlin, among others. Um, Since we're on the subject, how would you describe and characterize today's military? Oh, wow. That's a... It's an intimate and tough question, I would say, we're wanting. Um, I think we've taken our eye off the ball. Now, the men and women of the United States military are still dedicated to the mission in front of them. But like with any national military, it's hard to deliver good results for your nation if the foreign policy that's developed, if the leadership decisions made, don't set you up to succeed. And I think more and more, the military is questioning whether the leadership is doing the right things. Now, they're never going to do that openly. Uh, But our foreign policy has gotten us into forever wars and lost a lot of men, women, equipment for reasons that we find hard to comprehend. Yeah, I think that's that's well stated. And meanwhile, we find ourselves in a position of potentially getting involved in, in more foreign conflicts than than perhaps we, you know, many uh, civilians understand. Um, you see what's happening in Israel. You see what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, there, are, there are war drums beating from China, perhaps trying to go into into uh, Taiwan. Um, where do you stand on American military intervention? If you were to go to Congress and they were to ask you to cast a vote on whether or not we send continue to send aid and if we, we need to send munitions and or even commit troops to any of those uh, any of those particular regions, how would you how would you handle that, Chris? No, very good question. I think um, it's not as simple as a yes or no, and I think we've seen that evolve here recently in both the, the discussions about Israel and Ukraine. It's how we do it. 
Now, the, the baseline to me is, is it in the U.S. vital interests? And we've lost track of that. Now, I'll, I'll be a little nerdy uh, for a minute, but we need to revisit the Powell Doctrine, and I won't dive into that too much, but we need to be focused on what our vital interests are and have a plan that goes in and has an end state with deliverable results so that we know if we're being successful or not. Now, when we talk about Ukraine, I'd say there is definitely, and there still is definitely something we can do to influence the outcome in that situation, but at $160 billion, we are not being successful. Now, it's very different when you look at um, Israel. It's a much lower cost. It's a much more crisp situation with a, a deliverable result and a very capable ally who we've been working with for a long time. So I, I think you take each one and you put it up against the national strategy and see where it falls out. Is it in America's vital interests? And that defines in what way we can or should engage. And at the end of the day, we really need to use Congress to enable those actions. That's a very well-thought-out response. We're talking to Chris Banweg, who is a candidate for Congress in District 13. His website, which I'm looking at right now, is BanwegForCongress.com. Banweg is B-A-N-W-E-G, for those who do not know. I would not have known had I not uh, been made aware of Chris last week. So what is in America's uh, most vital interest right now? We, we don't have to talk about foreign foreign uh, entanglements any longer, but, but as you look at our economy, as you look at our inflation rate, if you, as you look at the immigration issue, if you, as you look at education, as you look at crime, which of those, give, give me the top two or three issues that would, uh, would most interest you if you were to get to Washington, D.C. and get into your first day on, on Capitol Hill. What do you want to attack? Oh, absolutely, Bob. First and foremost, and I knew this from being overseas, the stability of other nations is the strength of a nation is defined readily by its ability to control its own border. So number one, we've got to close the border. We have to secure our domestic homeland and then adopt an immigration policy that helps us sort through the mess we've created. Now, second to that, and very strongly close to the first, is fixing our economy. And that means ceasing the reckless spending we've got going on, halting inflation and enabling more jobs here in the United States that unleash the ingenuity of the American worker. If there's anything that I'm focusing my campaign on, it is the American working family. And then third and last, there is crime and justice. We are not addressing violent crime in our nation, and we need to get away from this two-tiered justice system that we seem to be putting in place. Americans need to have confidence in their nation and that they're treated fairly and equally in this nation. How do you plan to do that um, or, or attack that or approach that or propose bills for something like that, given the current climate? Because the two-tiered system of justice doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. If anything, it's picking up speed. It's un- it's, it's wrong. I agree with you, by the way. It's wrong. It's dangerous. Uh, it, it puts us all in jeopardy. But it's real. There seems to be a, a, a real movement on the part of what I would just call some radicals who are in government to say that we cannot treat everybody the same because we have to make up for past transgressions and past wrongs have to be righted by treating people differently now. That's a hell of a thing you're going to be pushing against. Absolutely, and it's worth pushing against it every day. I think to your specific question, it's going to come down to appointments, approvals. It comes down to some of the bureaucratic institutions that are enabling these processes, making sure that you have organizations aligned to the end state that we want in an equal and just America. And if that takes, you know, uh, transforming one of these organizations, eliminating it, uh, 
giving it less bureaucratic authority, what it is not formed to do. But given the resources it has, I mean, for instance, you look at the additional 87,000 agents in the IRS. What is the intent? Where are those resources going? Why are we paying for them? Could those resources be reallocated to something that's more beneficial? But by not fueling that agenda item, we can bring it back closer to the single-tier justice system. Yeah, well, that's 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 a good answer, and I'm glad you brought up about the 87,000 IRS agents. You know why, what they're there for, because this government has never met a dollar it couldn't spend, or, moreover, a dollar it couldn't borrow and then spend. Uh, we're right. $34 trillion in debt. The current House just kicked down the road again the can with another continuing resolution. Uh, rather than setting the budget and, and getting 12 different appropriations bills, they just continued the same radical spending ways of the Biden administration and the, and the Biden, uh, you know, controlled Congress. I know the Republicans have the slim majority, but nonetheless, they're not acting like it. How would you approach spending and how do we, how do we deal with that if you, if you end up in, uh, in Washington, D.C., Chris? I think we need to get away from what we're doing today, just as you said, Bob. Omnibus spending, we need to get back to the regular order. We need to be doing single-issue spending bills. And as we're trying to manage the mess that we have through these continuing resolution discussions, we've got to chip away at the process so that it gets back to single-issue spending bills. That must be step-by-step a part of the process. Yeah, I completely agree. That's one of the biggest headaches that I think so many of us have is the, you know, these omnibus bills and they try to, uh, push through uh, so many items that are not related to one another so that they can use them as political you know, uh, 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 cudgels, if you will, against some individual saying you voted against money for veterans or you voted against cutting Medicare, right. or, I mean, uh, cutting uh, uh, prescription drug prices and so forth. And no, you didn't. You voted against other things that were terrible in those bills. And that's a big part of the problem in Washington, D.C. It's called the swamp. Directly, Chris Banweg, why do you want to go into the swamp? You're living a great life. You're a city councilman. You got a nice little situation in Hudson, and and everything is good here. Why would you want to leave the comforts of your life right now and go engage in this mess in D.C.? Now, that's a it's a great question. And again, um, I went to war. I didn't go to war because I wanted to, but I went because it needed to be done. It's very much the same here. When I asked my family about this, when I was asked to do it. They initially said no, and I said, hey, guys, I've been asked to do this, and I've been asked to pray and think about it, so I want you to do the same thing. It's not an aspiration of mine to be a a politician, but I am committed to the nation. So my kids came back to me a couple days later and said, you know, you need to do this. It's going to make our futures better. So for me, I think the person that wins the Republican primary is going to have to take on Amelia Sykes, who is not only a career politician— but comes from a family of career politicians. And you can't beat a career politician and a political dynasty with just another career politician. I think our best chance at beating the Democrats in this race is to give voters a real alternative, to give them something authentic, something different. I think if we continue to send the same people to D.C. that we always have, we're not ever going to get out of this mess. So when I was asked, I said I would step up. So are you referring to Kevin Coughlin as a career politician? I think that's a fair assessment. I don't think it's a disparagement in any way. I mean, he spent a good chunk of his life in the Ohio legislature and then moved on to become a lobbyist and then is now a political marketing consultant. It's very much career politically oriented. 
What um, I'm looking at your bio on Chris Banway. I'm sorry, Banwag for Congress dot com too. Your your wife Leslie is a teacher. What do you What is your impression of the state of the schools in the state of Ohio and the state of our schools nationwide? Um, and you can speak to that from the vantage point of the teachers' unions to the radical uh, um, curricula that is that is uh, pervasive in these schools. The things that a lot of kids are being exposed to. Uh, do we have education centers anymore? Or are they all indoctrinational centers? How does your wife see it? So my uh, my wife actually teaches at a uh, private Christian school. Ah, um, good for her. Yeah, we need more of those. <laughs> good for yeah, her. Yeah, and That's I, awesome. I think but, the. That basis was absolutely because people were looking for something different. Uh, we do have strength in our schools, but we also have some issues. We've got some overemphasis on social indoctrination. We have things distracting us from what the core of education is supposed to deliver. I, I say this, and there is absolutely evidence. Now, one of my last roles in, uh, in the military before I moved into my current one was a strategic planner with Israeli Defense Forces. I was dead shocked to see some of the reaction to October 7th in this country, and most of it coming out of our youth, either in high schools or colleges, emanating from the academic institutions. And it's not all of them, but it's enough that it should be concerning to everyone. It's a clear indication that we're not focused wholly on the right kind of education in our institutions. We're not, and you're right to feel that way. I think I saw a number that said 62% of current um, high school and college students believe that Israel, which, of course, was victimized on October 7th, are the oppressors. They're the ones who, you know, that we should we should be opposed to, uh, and what they are doing is is in terms of defending themselves is the the real genocide in Gaza. So where they're getting those ideas, it certainly isn't, you know, uh, it, it cannot be that each of them individually came to these conclusions. They have to be being taught this. They have to be, uh, you know, having this stuff uh, forced down their throats, again, in indoctrination style, and it is sickening. So uh, I'm glad you're aware of that because I think education has got to be one of those core issues that anybody who goes to Congress has to be ready and willing to deal with because it's only getting worse. Every single year we crank out a new graduating class, both at the high school level on their way into the higher education indoctrination centers and, of course, from those colleges themselves going up to be the leaders of this country uh, in ways that are going to be very detrimental to us. Um, Last thing for you, Chris Banweg, as a as a, I don't know exactly when you got out of the 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 Corps, and I know you were in the Marine Corps Reserves, but did you have to get jabbed because you were in the in the military? I I did, and uh, it was very early in the process, and it was because uh, my partner Israel, I required the the vaccine, and I needed to go there to help. So um, during that time in our country, I had to take an overseas trip. And Israel required the jab, so I was okay. very early in the process. Okay, that's the the reason I ask. Of course, is I just wanted to get your your stand uh, as a potential member of Congress on the fact that it was forced. The fact that the Biden administration specifically made sure that anybody who's a federal employee, including all military, had to give up their own rights to medical freedom to make up their own minds about what toxins they want to put into their body, uh, experimental or otherwise. How do you feel about that? Well, I'll tell you at the time, it was very early, and I'd been jabbed by a number of things being in the military. So it, 
it wasn't as controversial because it was so early in the process that I said, okay, let's get it and let's go. But as I've watched it unfold after the fact, Mm -hmm. uh, you can't help but criticize, doubt how this was done. When we went into Iraq long, long ago and had to get the anthrax vaccine, there was a legitimate health reason because of livestock and exposure. But the threat from COVID, the exposure to our military, it just wasn't it wasn't at the same level. So, yes, I have significant concerns about how that was done and deep, deep concerns about how our military service people were treated if they resisted taking the jab. Well, I am very hopeful that we can get a majority in Congress, both the House and the Senate, and a uh, president that believes in, in, in medical freedom as well so that we can make sure that never, ever happens again where people are forced to take something that may or may not be actually more uh, damaging to them than the virus or the disease that they're, they're, they're supposedly uh, supposed to protect against. So that's just an important issue for me. And I appreciate your answer on it. Chris Banweg's website is Banweg, B-A-N-W-E-G, Banweg4Congress.com. He's running in District 13. Kevin Coughlin is his primary opponent there. Chris, it's a pleasure to meet you and to learn a little bit about your ideas and about your experiences and about your plans for this country. And I wish you the very best of luck. Uh, March is still quite a ways off. I'm sure we'll talk again if you're willing. No, I really appreciate it, Bob, and I look forward to doing it again. Thank you very much, Chris. All right, there you go. Chris Banweg for Congress and all. All right, it is 1137, our final segment on AM 1420, The Answer. We had a lot of great interviews. We talked to Frank LaRose. We talked to Chris Banweg, and we spoke with Senator Jerry Serino. It is override day in Columbus. That makes this a good day. Tomorrow, a little advance notice, we'll have uh, Jack Windsor on with us. We'll have Dr. Everett Piper on with us as well. And uh, uh, we're looking forward to uh, digging a little bit more deeply into some of these issues we didn't get to today, including that inflation story i've got uh in, in fact we might have a special guest on that too i'll let you know as we get a little closer but for the rest of this day let's turn it over to you 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110 our good friend todd from ward one in cleveland who i haven't heard from in a bit is on am 1420 the answer hey todd welcome back yo bob so yo, todd what motivated me mostly to make this phone call today was the bad idea of paying children with poor apps, with poor attendance, and and or their parents through taxpayer dollars and tax into taxpayer funded neighborhood public schools to come to school. That's what motivated me the most. But here are two brief comments I want to make sure get put out there. Okay. If we embrace the term closer to the accurate assessment of the facts gender masking bit of the term transgender this would mean that we're being more in line with what biology says okay your overall cellular makeup cannot be changed to the point where your gender is changed if we would be accepting of that as a public and definitely in the government we wouldn't have this problem with the bill that jerry was referencing we wouldn't have it number two if you are in a job a public job where the taxpayer is funding you as a result of you being elected, you are a politician. And that's to your most recent guest. Let that go. You're a politician. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, more, it's, a better assess, it's a better assessment of the facts to acknowledge that than rather than to try to change the definition of what a politician is, whether you be there for a long time or just one term. Okay. The money that, that these people want to put toward 
um, children and or their parents to encourage them to go to school or to better enable them to go to school is is a poor idea if it's coming through the taxpayer. If they want to do this privately funded, that would be different. Now, I don't necessarily think that's a good idea either, but that would be different because then you would have more flexibility as to when it could be pulled and when it could be when it could and if it should be put in place at all because there there are different conditions for people not coming to school and there I don't think anybody should be paid to go to a public school. But if you're gonna pay somebody, it should be because of their life their life is in such adverse conditions that okay, they their family needs some dough. Let you know do that. But it shouldn't be coming from the public dollar. That's it encourages it's gonna encourage a poor employee later on in life to be a poor employee and think that they should get paid in order to be better. It's a bad idea. Yeah, I completely concur. Um, quick, couple of quick responses, Todd, and thank you for the call. Um, first of all, you're right. If you're a politician, you're a politician. Chris Banwag is a city councilman on Hudson. Therefore, he's had to run for an office and be elected to it. So, yeah, technically it's a politician. I do understand his point, though, about career politicians, particularly at the higher levels at the state and at the federal level. To the last point, which was the main point, agree 100%. You start paying kids to go to school, which is something they're supposed to do anyway. You're paying them to exist, quite literally, because you are what you are doing is you are creating uh, uh, an environment in which people think they have a right to get paid to just do something that they have to do anyway. Guess what we all have to do? We all have to provide for ourselves. We all have to pay our taxes. We all have to buy our, you know, pay for our own homes and so on and so forth. You are creating a nation of dependence, even more so. Going to school is what gets you an education that makes you employable. Being employable helps you to be able to stand on your own two feet. If you don't go and get your education and you end up not on your own two feet but on your back, unless the government is able to give you more money just to exist, well, then you, again, are a drain on society. It is a horrific idea, and the fact that there is bipartisan support for this in the Ohio State House, it's been co-sponsored by Republican Bill Seitz of Cincinnati, is just repugnant. Thank you so much, Todd, for the call. Uh, Joe in Westlake next. Hi, Joe. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hello, Bob. Your recent guest, Chris Banweg, uh, was in the U.S. Marine Corps, and he did military work for a foreign nation, Israel. That's kind of odd. He's got two pictures on his site showing him talking about defending Israel. Biden has carried out bombing in Yemen, Iraq, Somalia, and Syria in defense of Israel. Bob, uh, should we take the next step, as Biden recently suggested in the New York Times, his officials uh, implied this, should we take the next step and send our college-age children to fight to defend Israel in Iran? No, we should not um, be sending American troops overseas to do those things right now. And I don't believe he said that he went over there and fought. He didn't actually pick up a weapon and start shooting uh, jihadis and, and Hamas people. I think he was over there in a support role with Israel, uh, and that's the reason you know where he was uh, where he was deployed. But being in a support role is different than being in an active military fighting role. I do not believe we should do that. Uh, but you know, and thank you for the call. Being an ally. Of Israel, just same thing as being an ally. We have bases all over the world. We have bases all over the world, and some of them are more hot spots than others. And it's in support of our allied relationships with those countries. Uh, and I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But no, to answer your question, do I think we should be sending people to die in the fight against Hamas? No. 